Please be seated. And uh, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We will consider verses 10 through 18 this evening to prepare us uh, for our prayer of contrition afterward, that we would better have the mind of Christ and the mind of Christ that we are to have for one another, to put away schism and to come together in the blessed unity of the Savior. So please give your attention again to the reading of God's holy word, 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 10 down to 18. These are the very words of God. Let us hear them as such. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to what, unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to the preaching of your word. And Father, there are so many subjects and topics in your word that our flesh despises, and this is one, undoubtedly. And so, Father, it would do these dear people no good if the minister would preach in his own flesh. Instead, we pray, Father, that you would give the spirit of the living God to the minister that he would preach in demonstration of the spirit and of power, and that these dear people would receive the word of God with the word of God open to their hearts by the Spirit's ministry. O Lord, we pray that we would all have a care now in the preaching of the word for the unity of the body of Christ, and that Jesus Christ would be lifted up before us in the preaching, that we would say that for the sake of our precious Redeemer, we would never be schismatic. And so, Father, to that end, we pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. It is very easy to divide. It is almost impossible to unite again afterwards. It is easy to divide. It is hard to unite. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to bring back brethren who are divided. And so with that warning, Proverbs 17.14 says, The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water. Therefore, leave off contention before it be meddled with. Strife and contention in the Proverbs are pictured as a dam that is bursting. That is one of the most frightening things possible and imaginable, especially if you live downstream. The force of the water that comes through is virtually impossible to stop 
and the reversal of that water is impossible. Once strife and disunity begin, it is hard to reverse, is what God says. Just think about it. Just think about history. Church splits, common. Church mergers, incredibly rare. Members leaving churches in frustration, common. Members returning to embrace one another again, very rare. Brethren splitting, common. Brethren returning to embrace, sadly, very rare. The proverb says then, be preemptive. Do not meddle with contention. As soon as you feel contention break out, as soon as you detect the first motion of strife, you are to mortify it, lest it break out into full-on division and schism. This is a vital principle for the sake of the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem, for the sake of the peace and prosperity of the church. And this is something, brethren, the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem, we've sung it, we've also seen the Savior in John 17 fervently desire it. This is the heart of the Savior, friends. He prays for it, and he prays for us to be one, one with another. And so, in other words, to pray, thy will be done, is to pray that our heart would seek unity and pursue it with one another. And so with that, the theme tonight is simply an appeal to flee the temptation of strife and schism for the sake of the unity of Christ's church, which is his bride. And we consider three headings tonight concerning schism. First is the dreadful nature of schism. Second is the causes of and cures of schism. And third, the hope that schism will end this side of glory. First, the dreadful nature of schism. This is not going to be by any means a comprehensive view of schism tonight. That is far too large of a subject. But if I can impress one thing on you all tonight, it would be to recognize how grievous a thing schism and division in the body of Christ are. Because it goes against the very nature of the gospel and the very work of Jesus Christ. It is antichrist, in other words. It goes against the work of Christ. And to let that thought drive deep into your mind and your heart is that insofar as it depends on you, you are to pursue peace with the brethren. In this text, just for our context, Paul pleads, he pleads to the church at Corinth as a church that is full of division. In verse 10, he charges them that there be no divisions among you. It's almost as if, if you read the book, if you read the epistle and you keep schism in your mind as you read it, it is almost as if schism had become natural to them. Almost in every possible way, schism was infecting this church. A party spirit was infecting the church. And these parties were forming around men, which is a present danger in the church. How many say, I follow this man, or I follow this man's teaching? That's what was happening here in Corinth. Some said they followed Paul. Some said they follow Apollos. Some say they followed Cephas, which is Peter, of course, boys and girls. <laughs> and then there is, there are the super spiritual who say, I follow Christ, right? But what was that? Paul shows us. That's just a pretense to not associate with the other factions. I won't associate with them because I associate with Christ. There's a kind of high-mindedness then that is still factious. But remember, as you consider this text, 
Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they preached the very same message. They preached the gospel. There was no reason to divide along party lines. They all preached that Christ sent them to, in verse 17, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That was the work of these men. Paul and the other men, we have to believe, through charity, had no interest in making their own followers. Certainly that was the case with Paul. He says, I have no interest in you saying, I was baptized by the Apostle Paul, so I follow him. Now, to be sure, these men had different emphases, and men do. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Perhaps Apollos, with his powerful preaching, took in rhetorically-minded Greeks. So their ministries targeted different groups, didn't they? But the gospel that they preached had one aim in mind, to take a diversity of peoples and make them one to ingather and graft them into the singular mystical body of Christ. Paul said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 This is the aim of the gospel, friends. This is the aim of the gospel, to take divergent peoples and make them one. And so then schism undoes It undoes the the work of the gospel, which is to engraft many peoples into one people. That's why Paul said, "I, I have no interest in anybody saying they were baptized in my name. Why? Because baptism is in one name, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It is an engrafting into the triune God. It signifies that though we are many, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Just as there are three persons in one, in our unity, we are one people. And our singular baptism serves as a sign then. You think of this, the very sign that causes you to enter into the church shows that you cannot have factions. Because you are all baptized, not in the name of the minister who baptizes you, not in the name of the denomination that you entered into, but in the name of the one triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And as I've said, Corinth had all kinds of factions and divisions. Even in the Lord's Supper, you probably remember this. We come to this text often when we meditate on the Supper. In 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, speaking of the Supper, Paul says, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. There's an important truth there. Schism is not always geographic, is it? You come to one place to take one supper, but there are divisions among you. You're divided, even if you are in the same building. Schism and division is spiritual, not geographic. It is internal. But they could all come together, right? This is a warning here. We could, even though there aren't many here tonight, we could all be here, but divided, even in the same room. And that's something we have to be aware of. And you remember there were other things in Corinth that they had to be aware of in chapter 6, right? They went to law one against another. Grievous things. And so Corinth is a church filled with division and schisms. And that is not unlike many of our churches and our denominations today. Sad to say. Well, the Greek word in verse 10 translated division is important. That is the word schism. In the Greek, it is schism. 
It's not just division. And that word shows the nature of division and schism. It's not just a separation, but it's a ripping apart, which is what schism is. It's a tearing. Schism is the tearing apart of something that was once whole. It's like the tearing apart of a piece of cloth or a piece of paper. Like if I, if I tore this right now, you would hear that terrible noise, wouldn't you? That kind of um, ripping noise. And that's why the word schism, actually, its, its sound communicates what it is. Schism. It's like that tearing asunder. Just hearing the word schism then, and to be called schismatic then, should give you a visceral response. This is something violent. It's the opposite of peace. Schism is. And it should cause us to despise and hate division, mostly because what is it tearing apart? It is tearing apart Christ's mystical body. That one body that we were called into in the gospel, schism tears apart. And that's where the central question of the text and what I want to press on you in verse 13. The question is, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Meddling with schism and division should have you think on that question. When, when schism and division breaks out, your first thought, as it should in all things, but especially here, should be to Jesus. Is Jesus divided? We're all one in his mystical body. All believers are engrafted into Christ. They all share spiritual union with him. They all share the most precious thing of all, which is Christ. And that's the really mournful thing about it, is that we forget it when we're prone towards division, when we're prone towards schism, we forget Jesus. And we forget our position in him, and we forget the position of our brother in him as well. And when you think on schism, and you remember what I just said, that schism can happen without physical separation, now you think about it as they come to the Lord's Supper and the warning of schism in this book. They're coming to share, right? We being many are one bread, and one body, how can you have schism and come to the Lord's table? You deny the truth of the sacrament. You deny what it preaches. The body of Christ then, you know, think about this. You could be at the table, all of you sitting there, and yet there is schism. You can say, we're all taking of the same cup. That doesn't really matter at the end of the day if schism is formed in your heart. It, it makes a mockery of the Lord's Supper, which is why he says in 1 Corinthians 11, it's like as though you're not having the Lord's Supper at all. You don't come to celebrate the Lord's Supper. How can you with schism in your heart? So schism, you have to understand, begins in the heart. Like I said, it cannot take root, uh, it cannot express itself geographically, but it can be present in a body. And as schism is in the heart, I want you to see how tender the apostle is here. Because he pleads to the heart of the Corinthians. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much there. There's so much theology under there, isn't there? That he, he beseeches them. He begs them in this way. He does not command them, though he could have. He pleads with their hearts. I want you to remember this. Schism has to be appealed to in the heart as well as the mind because schism is irrational. Schism actually denies so much theology that men know. But because their hearts are desperately wicked, they deny everything that they know about the nature of schism. 
Schism is irrational. Often the mind knows the truth. You, you talk to schismatics and they will say, yes, I know we are one in Christ. They can't deny it if they know the Bible. They know that charity to all men, but especially the household of God, that I am to be swiftly reconciled to my brother. The mind knows all of that, but the flesh refuses to allow them to go in that direction and creates excuses as to why the rules of the word of God don't apply to them. And so, as schism is in the heart, the apostle appeals to the heart. He says, I beseech you, brethren, I beg you, and I call you my brothers and sisters. I beg you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say in the name of my Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say in the name of, of Apollos' Lord Jesus Christ. He says in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, even that address, the apostle is wise to appeal to the heart of these brethren. He is ours together. You do not have a Christ. I do not have a separate Christ. The Holy Ghost asks, is Christ divided? He is one, and he is one, and we are one. What do we profess? There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Do you ever think of that in Ephesians 4 when you are tempted towards schism and division? That we, this brother, this sister and I, we share so much. Have I not prayed with this person, whether in the worship service or otherwise, our Father, which art in heaven, our Father. This is what we find so obnoxious about so much modern communion practice, isn't it? That everybody seems to have their own Christ. You know, you talk about this text, is Christ divided? And yeah, Christ is divided. You sit over there with your, your grape juice and your uh, piece of bread and that person over there and this and that. And there isn't union and communion one with another. Everybody seems to have, especially in our day and age, an individual nature of, uh, uh, view of the faith that I have my own Christ and I keep him and he is not yours. He is just mine. Division, we have to understand then, is not our Lord's desire for his church. We read John 17. What did Christ pray for three times there? Three times. I don't know if you noticed this. That they may be one as we are. Verses 11, 21, and 22. In such a short prayer, he prays three times that we would be one. So much of that prayer was spent on this matter which is so close to his heart. So what is our Savior's desire for you and me? That we would be one. That we would be one body. He prayed that as the Godhead is one, he wants us to be one, united with no divisions. And has Christ stopped praying this? No. He still prays this in heaven against schism and for unity. So we must remember then in this first heading, schism is a grave sin. Schism is a grave sin against your Lord and it goes against his work. We don't put it in that, in those terms. But to divide from a brother or sister in the heart, not just geographically, is against the work of Jesus Christ. Christ then, you have to then take the next turn. Christ is against you in your actions. 
and he is not for you. Well, with that to put in mind the dreadful nature of schism, let's consider our second heading, the causes of and cures of schism. Let's consider the causes of schism that we might detect it as it starts to break out in our heart because that's where it has to, to be mortified, in our heart. Perhaps, first though, we need to understand that there are legitimate reasons to separate from those who claim to be Christ's. It is actually Christ-honoring at times to do that. You remember the reformers had to divide from Rome why she rejected the gospel and, and the word, really. And that is the primary reason for legitimate division and separation. The gospel has divided us. What was Paul's grave concern in verse 17? That he would preach the gospel. And he finds in verse 18 that the preaching of the cross is the power of God. In Galatians 1.6, he says that those who proclaim another gospel are accursed. That is why the doctrine of Rome is anathema to us, and we cannot fellowship with papists. That's why we cannot fellowship either with those uh, who claim at some point to be Protestants, who espouse things like federal vision and the new perspectives on Paul. Men like Paul Lightheart, Doug Wilson, and N.T. Wright have never repented of distorting the gospel. You cannot fellowship with them because the gospel matters that much. It matters more than winning some so-called culture war. To win the culture war, you must have a pure gospel. Or else you will be corrupted by the culture and you will become just like it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Nothing else. I am not saved by my covenant faithfulness, but Christ's covenant faithfulness to all those who distort the gospel in that way. Nor can we fellowship with those who do not preach the triune God. Those who deny the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus are not our brothers, for they have made a different God, the God of the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. They are not our brothers and sisters. We cannot unite with them. But then, even with true brethren, as we go inward a bit more, there are true brethren we cannot always worship together with. We might disagree on the nature of worship or the sacraments. True brothers and sisters, we disagree on the nature of the church and we cannot share the same government with them. Now this should make us mourn though. This should make us mourn because this is not what ought to be and we should grieve over it. Even though we are not in the same denomination or congregation, we are to embrace those as true brethren. What has happened is schism in the past has divided us, and we must labor to heal those breaches. But as far as it depends on us, we are not to try to deepen our divisions with true brethren, but instead to reconcile. Rabbi Duncan, the free church minister of the 19th century, famously said what? I am first a Christian, next a Catholic, then a Calvinist, fourth a Pado-Baptist, and finally a Presbyterian. I cannot reverse that order, and neither should we. Our distinctive principles, in other words, cannot cause us to deny love to every true Christian. But today, we inherit a church Catholic that is church universal, where divisions and schisms have occurred, but we are not to cause division further. As Presbyterians, let me say this, our nation does not need another Presbyterian denomination. It needs fewer, not more. And so we must seek to bring back together Presbyterians that have been divided 
and not make new denominations. That said then, showing there are legitimate reasons why we are separated at times, let us know how division breaks out. We can be wise to it. The first is to know that schism begins, as I have said, in your affections. 1 Corinthians 12.25 says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Schism breaks out when you no longer care for a member in the body. When there is that person or those persons that you just don't care about in the body. When love for a member in the body turns to apathy or reviling, schism is there. It's already begun. Schism doesn't happen later. It has actually happened in your heart. You know, you and I, even where we are so close here in this congregation, so I don't think there's many places like this, but you and I may differ on matters of faith and practice, but our affections for one another ought never change. Our affections should never be anything but charity or love. And so in the body, this is what Paul says very plainly, the Holy Ghost says through Paul, we must all have the same care one for another. No matter how far somebody has gone in their Christian life, you are to have the same care. We must treat each other the same when it comes to our affections. What was said of the original disciples? And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. This is the church, what it ought to be in Acts 2.46. Schism is pernicious, friends, because our flesh will cause us to care about some in the body of Christ and write off others. But we are to have the same care and singleness of heart. And when the affections of a member of the body turn to what is in Ephesians 4.31, schism has truly erupted. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. It is possible, and you have likely, because you are a sinner as I am, felt bitterness, wrath, and anger towards a member of Christ's mystical body. What you have to understand, and this is theology that is being lost in the Reformed churches we must bring back, is that the very first motion of sin is sin. The very first motion of schism is sin. And so when bitterness is breaking out towards a member of Christ's body, schism is coming. And you need to put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice, and repent. And what's the opposite of that? Cultivating love and care for that brother or sister. What we have to do as we remember their position in Christ, beg the Lord. These are powerful prayers. Beg the Lord, let me love this one as you love that one. And so, schism begins in the affections. But then, unity and a prevention of schism comes if we have a unified confession. In verse 10, the apostle says, unity is found when we all speak the same thing. This is a blessed thing that we don't pursue too much in the church today. But the church, it created and wrote, by God's help, creeds and confessions to mark boundaries of orthodoxy. The early creeds allowed the church to all speak the same thing. When one person said, Jesus is Lord, and the other did too, but one denied the divinity of Christ, and the other one said, no, I believe Jesus is God, the creed comes, the Nicene Creed comes, and it says, this is what? We believe so we can speak the same thing. 
Otherwise, there is schism. You see, creeds and confessions allow us to unify. The later confessions unified uh, kingdoms and churches. And so many men are involved in their uh, crafting to create careful balances of Catholicity and conscience so that they are not too narrow, but also not too wide, so that the church of Jesus Christ can all speak the same thing. And what we have to be aware of as we join churches that have confessions is, and this was actually really insightful for me, but Matthew Henry has a little book called A Brief Inquiry into the True Nature of Schism. And he reminds us here that the apostle says we must all speak the same thing, not necessarily think the same thing. And that's an important distinction, friends. You may disagree on parts of our confession or our testimony, but we all objectively know that that this is what this body confesses as its standards. And for the sake of unity and not creating schism, we must resolve to speak the same thing together, even if we disagree in areas. Even as a minister, right, I take, uh, uh, I take an oath to God. I cannot teach contrary to the doctrines of the church. That doesn't mean I cannot think differently in different areas, but if something must change, I must submit them through the church so that the church changes the doctrine uh, if we are not found to be scriptural. And so what I would say is, for the sake of the gospel, for unity and the kingdom of God's advancement, we must all resolve to speak the same thing and not contradict what the doctrine of the church is publicly. Now, when it comes to that matter, it is worth saying that this kind of unity is built on the truth of God's word, right? It's built on truth. You cannot build, in other words, unity on lies. Unity can only be built on the teachings of this book. In verse 10, it says, We must be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And this is, again, maybe for our contemporary age more important, but there's this old canard, you've probably heard it, that doctrine divides and love unites. Right? Now, that's not to deny that love unites. We must have love and affection but love and affection would cause us to unite around doctrine. How could we ever be united if we never agreed on the nature of justification by faith alone in Christ alone? It'd be impossible for us to have fellowship. This is the problem with some of those other uh, uh, divergent views of the gospel, even in so-called Protestant churches. How can we be united if we cannot agree on the nature of human sexuality? We cannot unite to say Doctrine divides, but love unites, is actually so far against the word of God, it denies plainly what is in verse 10, doesn't it? This is where you can take somebody who makes that statement, bring them to verse 10, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, that ye all speak the same thing. We are to press forward to be of the same mind and same judgment. This is important. We cannot just sweep it away. Otherwise, we have a false superficial peace. Jeremiah 6.14, They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, where there is no peace. You can have a false peace very easily by having silly statements like doctrine divides. And I'll just say, friends, the churches with the most quarrels are actually the ones who have the leakiest statements of faith. 
Very loose. I once attended a Bible church that took no stance on the doctrines of grace. They said, anything is, uh, is freely able to be taught here, uh, Arminianism or Calvinism. Both viewpoints are acceptable. And you might think, well, the circle then is very wide, right? So there would be more unity. No. When the new pastor came in who was a Calvinist, half the congregation left because they didn't want a Calvinist minister. So, you have to unite around the truth, but also with love and charity. In other words, doctrine and charity are not contrary. It's the devil's lie that to have doctrine, you must not have love. Where did we come up with that? That if we have doctrine, we don't have love? Remember as well, because this is the, the sleight of hand that the devil plays, doctrine divides, but love unites is a doctrine, isn't it? It's a teaching. It's a doctrine. And so it, by its own statement, is self-defeating and is to be rejected, a false doctrine. So a combination in Corinth of an alienation of affection, disagreement on doctrine, and factions caused in verse 11, contentions or quarreling. And I want to focus on this for a moment, these contentions that lead to schism. The Bible teaches you, and you need to always remember this, because this I have seen more often than not when it comes to division. The Bible teaches you where contentions come from. Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention. Only by pride cometh contention. When our disagreements are built on pride, you will find quarrels. But a church whose members are constantly humbling themselves will have unity. This is why days like this are actually very important in the life of the Christian. To humble ourselves before God all the day. How that mortifies pride in us when we see that we are sinners. And so congregations that are constantly humbling themselves before God Almighty, they will find there are less contentions. Churches that are composed of members who know they are sinners in needs of God's grace will have unity. Churches composed of members who are constantly putting away pride will have unity. Ask yourself this, is there a reason there is a lack of affection for a particular brother or sister? And is it your pride? Has your pride been wounded in some way by them? Have they said something to wound your pride? Have they shown you to be wrong in some manner? Or have they said something offhand? This happens all the time. They've said something offhand to deflate you, to speak about your child rearing or or something, even your cooking or whatever. Your pride is wounded, and suddenly for the most banal things, there is now schism in the midst of a congregation. And what an awful thing that is. See if the reason you do not care for particular brethren and you quarrel with them, whether in your heart or out loud, is your pride, friend. And always remember this, pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. And sad to say, it not only causes your downfall, but schism in a church. When it comes to, then, factions, perhaps pride was part of that. Maybe the Corinthians were especially proud of the man that they followed in their faction. It's hard to know, but let me treat factions more broadly than cults of personality. Cliques form in a church in all kinds of different directions. It's hard to even keep track. Many make friends only with... uh, brethren who are of the same kind of education level or interests or ethnicities or whatever else. You know, even in this congregation, I would just implore you, 
at lunchtime, sit with many different kinds of people. Get to know them. Get to know better ways to love them. Um, you know, even if you disagree, and this is where you find schism, right? Do you ever sense that I don't really want to sit with this person because they disagree with me on this or that or the other thing? Maybe they're not as reformed as me, or maybe they have strange views in my mind anyway of how to raise children or their hobbies are bizarre to me. You know, all the books in the world cannot contain all the reasons why men and women create factions. But sinful man creates all kinds of factions. Whatever it is, put away a party spirit and have the same care for one another. And for us as elders, it's very common. It's probably happened to you because it's happened to me, uh, and I am a pretty terrible sinner in many ways, um, to go into the courts of the church and have party spirit. When that man gets up to the microphone, I'm going to immediately discount everything he has to say because he might come from a group that believes certain things. In, and you think about it, especially in like the Reformed Presbyterian Church, right? Like <laughs> how narrow of a group we are anyway. And then there's this, this slight deviation and suddenly this person's from a whole other party. It's like we're Democrats and Republicans. Party spirit, that is something. Can you imagine how distasteful that is to the Lord Jesus Christ while we're doing the work of his church? It's an awful thing. We're all Christ's and are to do his work to his glory. And for the sake of unity, all of us now, for the sake of Christ, you are going to have to die to self when it comes to this doctrine. Because schism comes from our unmortified carnality. In 1 Corinthians 3, 3 to 4, coming back to factions, it's always on his mind. Paul writes, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions and uh, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? The plain truth is this. Your flesh craves division. It longs for it because your flesh hates Christ. Your flesh hates Christ. It hates his body and it loves itself. And you are called to crucify the flesh and its sinful passions. And what you must hold on to is the greater picture, uh, friends. You are to die to yourself so that you would live for what Christ loves and what Christ wants. Unity requires self-sacrifice and putting away what you desire. Do you remember the lament of the apostle in another book that has to deal with unity? In Philippians 2.21, what is the lament? For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. Schism in a body comes because we seek our own and not what Christ wants. We are selfish, we are self-centered, we are carnal and not spiritual. We are not willing to deny ourselves and do what is best for Christ's body. And to seek Christ then in this, as you, as you think on Christ now, come back to a thought that I, I put before you earlier. You have to remember when you think of your brethren and to have the same care one for another, their position in Christ. If you forget it and you start to forget what the apostle asks in verse 13, is Christ divided? And he follows up with what? Was Paul crucified for you? Right? He, he's saying, who was crucified for the believer? All believers. Jesus Christ. And so then to despise, listen to this well, to despise a brother is to despise Christ's sacrifice for them. It is to despise the work of Jesus Christ. And how can you tell the Lord, I will not love one that you love, and then say with the next breath, I love you, Jesus. 
It's impossible. He says, what did he say? Whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do to me. When the Apostle Paul persecutes the church, he asks, why did you persecute me? When you hate your brother, Jesus asks, why do you hate me? That's the solemn truth. Think of that when you have sinful animosity. And so, to reverse all of that, it is the case that the Bible teaches that charity or love is the great bond between all believers. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all, put on charity the bond of perfection. You are to put on charity, meaning it is not a natural thing, but it is something that only comes from the Lord himself. We come equipped from the womb with pride and selfishness. We even have a superficial love where if somebody, you know, it actually might be very telling that you actually probably don't love people that you say you love because you probably are just gratified in some way by them. But in order to love truly, to have true charity, you need the Spirit's help that you can love someone who is even hateful towards you. That is the calling of the Christian is to love them that even revile you. You are to pray for this often. Even in the church, there are going to be people who are are gripped by the flesh, and they're going to continue to revile you, and your calling is still to love them. Even as we hear the great truth of Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is why we have to take up our cross, die to ourselves, follow after Jesus, we are called to be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Do you notice how many scriptures I have brought out that for the Apostle Paul, it always comes back to Christ's work, doesn't it? He doesn't just say, love them in the abstract. Remember what Christ has done. Remember how Christ has forgiven you. Remember how Christ has died for him and her and you. And what you have to do then, one of the actions of charity, and this is something very necessary for the bond of peace in a congregation, is you must always receive the words of, uh, or, and actions of a person in the congregation with charity. Always putting a charitable slant to your brethren's actions. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of it, and I've had to repent of this many times, sometimes I have put uh, an uncharitable slant on the, the actions or words of a, of a brother or a sister, and then later on discover if I actually understood what they were saying and why they were saying it, I would, uh, I would not have seen it as something against me or anybody else, and I would have understood what their motives and why they said it, and I took it completely the wrong way, and I have broken the ninth commandment. And so you always have to and I'm sure it's happened to you before. How many times have you been surprised by what is behind or underneath an offense towards you or perceived offense? We often think the worst of our brother and not the best, and so schism forms. But 1 Corinthians 13, 48, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. Hear that? is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. 
Charity, love of this sort, is the bond of perfection because it bears, believes, hopes, endures, and is not easily provoked. And yet we find ourselves easily provoked. Charity alone can knit redeemed sinners together in Christ. And what do we hear of charity? This is why we need the grace of charity so much. For now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. When the Lord revives his people, he will bring this greatest gift of all, this greatest grace, I should say, of all. It is the greatest grace, greater than faith, right? Greater than hope, because it always endures, and it will never end. And if you would all, then, this is the last section of this heading, and the last one is really our conclusion. And I would say what the Apostle says throughout the Bible is, if you would all remember the cause you are enlisted in, all of you, the advancement of the gospel, you would so much sooner put away division. What army can survive by being divided? Brethren, division, and if nothing else, take this to heart. Division saps energy from the kingdom's advancement. What could be used to take the gospel to the unbelieving world is actually now energy being spent inside of the house of God in all kinds of ungodly ways. Division saps energy from the kingdom's advancement. And that by itself, if we really cared about the kingdom of God, would cause us to put away division. What was the unifying cry in Philippians? Only let your conversation or conduct be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1-2. How many denominations have forgotten the gospel, and so they do not unify around it. Instead, in their petty schisms, and the devil is laughing. The devil is laughing because we are so easily divided, and he is allowed to spread his poison throughout the world because we will not unify and strive together for the faith of the gospel. You are to stand fast in one spirit, stand fast in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In our time, our churches are fragile and the gospel seems to be losing ground in the nation. This is not a time for infighting. This is not the time for schism. This is the time to rally together closer one to another, to bring the light of Christ to the nations, to see souls brought in, to have the kingdom of God advance Schismatic churches know little of the striving for the gospel. They divide, they divide, they divide, and they never advance the kingdom. And suddenly you got one family in their home watching services on TV. That is what schismatic people do. They don't take the gospel out. And so if we would be evangelistic minded, we would find great unity. It's always a great blessing when I go out with you all. There's just a, a greater sense of camaraderie, <laughs> unity in Christ. There's a greater sense that we are all of the same spirit, drinking of the same Savior. And how can schism form in an environment like that? That is why the remedy to schism is also the pursuit of the gospel together and to never forget it. So again, I implore you, for the sake of Jesus Christ, deny yourself, seek peace, and pursue it 
for the sake of Christ, his body, his kingdom, his gospel. Time fails us, but I trust these meditations are helpful. While unity seems so out of our grasp at times, just look at the many denominations. I sort of made an offhand comment about we don't need another Presbyterian denomination in this nation. Even so, it seems so far away from us to have this one national church in this place. But we walk by faith, and we don't walk by sight, and we have a great hope that schism will end, and we'll conclude with that. You must have faith and hope that Christ's prayer in John 17, that they, uh, that they be one as we are, is a prayer that is being answered and will be answered. Some might say, well, of course this prayer, it's answered in heaven. But you remember that, that prayer. It was not a prayer for the church triumphant in heaven. It was a prayer for the church militant, the church on earth. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. John 17, 15. This is a prayer for the church in this world. And so his prayer, they be one as we are, is a prayer for us in the world. And it will be answered. Why? Because he said, the Father always hears me. By faith, believe the best days of the church's unity is ahead and not behind us. The time will come when Christ will bless us with great unity, a greater unity than we had in the first century or the 17th. The Lord will revive us again. It was prophesied that even the watchmen, the presbyters of the church, will see eye to eye one day. Isaiah 52, 8. The, Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Just as we have in various times and places historically for the unity of the church, what the Lord has done before, He can surely do again, beloved. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What the Lord did at the Synod of Jerusalem or the Council of Nicaea or the Westminster Assembly or the Synod of Dort, He can do today. Even in our relatively small body here as a denomination, whatever schisms there are in presbyteries and in the denomination, He can heal. Let us desire no schism will form. Let us seek peace and purity of the church here and pray to the Lord. What a thing it would be, friends. And when was the last time? You don't have to answer this, obviously. When was the last time you prayed before today for the peace and purity of the church? That we would all be one. That all Protestant denominations, all Reformed denominations would go away and be united in the truth of Christ. What a thing it would be to pray to the mediator his own prayer in return. Lord, make us one by the unity of the Spirit, just as thou and thy Father are one, that the love wherewith thou hast been loved by the Father would be in us as thou art in us. Beloved, do you not think that Christ smiles at such prayers, praying what is dear to his own heart, so I leave you with James's counsel. For whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. 
The very thing that causes schism, your lusts, is the very thing that keeps you from praying the Lord's desire that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. We ask amiss and do not receive. Oh, friends, I believe that when the Lord pours out revival on the church, we will be praying this prayer fervently. When the Lord revives his people, these are the things we will be moved to pray for. More than we will be praying for our daily bread, we will be praying for thy kingdom come. And that's what happens in revival. Well, with such thoughts upon God's word, let us arise now and seek him in prayer. I'll pray for the Lord to bless the word, and then Elder Schoenberger will pray. Let us go to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, oh, we do pray, Father, that we would all be one. Yes, here in this, in this room, but not just this room, in our congregation, but not just our congregation, but our presbytery, and not just our presbytery, but our synod, and not just our synod, but the church universal, all who call on the name of the Lord and their children that we would all be one as you, Father and Son, are one. Oh, give us the Spirit of the Lord. Pour out your Spirit that we would have sinful divisions healed and that we would find ourselves united with our brethren, that we would put on charity, which is that bond of peace, that we would long for our brothers and sisters, that we would have the same care one for another. Father, we don't pray this even for our own well-being. But instead, we pray this for Jesus Christ, who is not divided. Oh, Lord, what a terrible thing schism is. Keep it from your people, Father, and heal the breaches that have already come about via schism and roll back those things. Heal the breach as only you can. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.